The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture reading is going to come from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and thir- through 35, but also from John chapter 15. So get that um, ready as well. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35 is found on page 821. When you are ready, would you rise as I read from God's word? Now great crowds accompanied him. And he, return, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's turn to page 848, um, John chapter 15, 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in me, in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm very thankful for you guys. Thankful very much. This is a walking to church this morning, just praying. I found myself being very thankful for this 10-year anniversary. I have friends who graduated seminary at the same time I did who just aren't pastoring anymore. They're just not around for any number of reasons and I just found myself very thankful for the sustaining grace of Jesus Uh, some of you were here from the beginning and you suffered long as you worked through me detoxing a lot of things that were just unhelpful as a pastor Um, but you were kind you were gracious some of you had very pointed conversations with me that were very kind Um, you were serving as sandpaper to help hone the edges of my life I was reminded of just something I heard, I don't know, not too long ago. 
think it might have been just Ray Ortland talking about his dad, how his dad served long in ministry. And at some point in time, just having a very intimate encounter with Christ might have been coming off a sabbatical uh, or at least an extended leave just to work through some things. And this was after, I think, maybe 15, 20 years of pastoral ministry. And if I remember the story right, Ray said his dad came into the pulpit coming off that extended break in his first Sunday back and said something like, I just want you to know, I think Jesus is leading your church to have a new pastor. And there was this audible like inhale and gasp, like is, it, like, is he resigning right now? And he followed it up with, I think I need to be your new pastor. And what he meant by that was, even after 20 years in the ministry, he is just a Christian like the rest. And he is learning how to apply the gospel like the rest, and learning how to rest in Jesus like the rest. Um, and that thought was running through my mind, and it was even just something I'd considered doing coming out of sabbatical because uh, after 10 years of ministry, I've been very, very thankful for the way Jesus has sustained me, but also recognizing that as a Christian, just like you, I've got a lot of room to grow in learning how to apply the gospel and rest in, in Jesus in my own life. And I've been very thankful for your guys' slowness and kindness and long-suffering to bear with me as I seek to imitate Jesus. And as you seek to run after the imitation of me and your other fellow pastors. So in this sense, I hope you see a new pastor for the next 10 years. Uh, that you see in me a model of me attempting to pursue Jesus well and sometimes not so well. And where I'm serving well, I hope you are encouraged by that and where you see me serving not so well that you also see how to follow Jesus recognizing that I'm a man like the rest and the best of men or men at best and my hope is that when you see me or any of your fellow pastors what you see is just sort of us set to the side and that you see you see Christ in the center okay I love you I hope to pastor until Jesus says stop pastoring whether that's another 20 years from now or in some other ways, but that through it all that you see the Lord Jesus Christ in me and through me. I'm thankful for Hebrews 13 that my pastoring years have been made easy. This has been simultaneously some of the hardest 10 years of my life I've ever gone through. Pastoring is not easy, but it has also been simultaneously the most joyful thing I've ever done in my entire life. And you guys have made it, made it such. And I just wanted to say thank you, okay? So with all the boo-hoos and the tears out of the way, let's turn to Jesus, all right? Luke 14, John 15. Luke 14, John 15. You'll hear me say this a couple of times. If your memory lasts longer than three weeks, you should be asking yourself, didn't we just preach this text literally like three weeks ago? And the answer is yes, we did. And you're going to hear some familiar things. I'm going to give you some new information. But the reason why we're going into John 15 is because I want you to hear my heart. And my hope for you as it relates to joy. And to hear how Jesus is for your joy. And the commands that he gives us. And the calls that he gives us to pursue. So our sermon title this morning is called Striving and Joy. The main idea is this, that striving looks like wholehearted following. 
striving to enter through the narrow door of the Lord Jesus Christ looks like wholehearted following. And you need to know this, this command from Jesus for you to strive is for your pure and absolute joy. Let's pray and ask Jesus to use me as an instrument in his hand. And we'll turn to the text. Jesus, I need you. I need you to speak through me. In the preparation of my words today, I just felt keenly the inadequacy of my, my gifting to be able to articulate the magnitude of joy that you lay before us in the invitation, the command to come and strive to enter through the narrow door of salvation in you. So Lord, where my words fail, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to speed ahead and do your work in your way so that joy in Jesus might increase. It's in your name, King Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Leading into the text, what I want to do is try to stitch together how we've arrived where we're at. A couple of weeks ago, we just airdropped into Luke 14, and that wasn't a good thing or a bad thing, but what you need to know is that these very punchy words of Jesus exist in a context. And the context is the theme that was introduced to us back in Luke 13, starting in verse 22 and verses 23 and following, where Luke is helping us as disciples to wrestle with this theme, the identity and the number of the Savior's people. It's this question, who are the Savior's people? What's their identity? What are they like? What do they pursue? What do they love? And this is the theme that runs from Luke 13, verse 22, all the way through 17, verse 10. This is what Luke says you need to know in your pursuit of Jesus. And if you remember, Brady alluded to it last week, that this theme was introduced by the question back in chapter 13, verse 23, when someone in the crowd speaks up, raises their hand, and asks this question of Jesus. Lord, will those who are saved be few. Well, those who are saved be few. And as we learned several weeks ago, and as we are unpacking it going forward, Luke leads us to a Pharisee's dinner party. This is what Chance and Brady were preaching. This is all a tightly woven argument where Luke is unrolling before us a holistic view, a holistic answer to this very question Will those who are saved be few? And we, we said, in a sense, the answer to this question is simultaneously yes and no. Because many will refuse to enter through the door of salvation in Christ alone. In one sense, the answer is yes. Those saved are going to be fewer than we would expect. But while that is true, we said it is also simultaneously true that the answer is also no because those who are saved are going to be way more than we could ever imagine. 
Thus the command from Jesus, you strive, you. Don't, don't, don't concentrate on the few, but concentrate on the you. Are you among the many who are going to strive to enter through the narrow door of Jesus Christ himself? Thus the command from Jesus, strive, enter the narrow door of salvation. Remember, Luke has written his gospel. We saw this all the way back in the opening verses of Luke chapter 1. He said, Theophilus, I'm writing you this account of Jesus so that you can have certainty. Certainty. I want you to take the things you've been hearing about Jesus and know with certainty that they are true. And of this, we can be certain, says Luke, starting in Luke 13, that Jesus is the only door of salvation, meaning that if anyone enters by me, we have the promise that he will be saved. But the great shock, according to what Luke is rolling out before us, is that those you would entirely expect to enter through the narrow door of Jesus for salvation, guess what? They are not going to enter. And those you would expect to never enter through the door of Jesus, guess what? They are going to come and answer the invitation of the Master's call to come and dine at the table and seat with Him for all eternity at the banqueting table of salvation hosted by Christ alone. We were just singing about that this morning. People are going to come, says Jesus, from east and west, north and south, Jew and Gentile, and the makeup of the Savior's people are going to be an absolute surprise when we sit at the table with him because we're going to look around and go, you're here? Like, how did you get here? And everyone's going to go, look at the head of the table. I'm here because I entered through him. It's going to be a great surprise because we're going to look around and go like, you're the last person I thought in the whole world who would ever enter through the door of Jesus for salvation. And that person's going to say, yeah, me too, but I saw. I answered the master's invitation. I came and I'm here. And then we're going to look around left and right and go, look, there's faces not here. Like, where is this religious leader? Where is this man who preached for 30 years? Where is this woman who led the women's ministry? Where are they at? And we're going to say, they're not here. Why? Because, Jesus says, some are last who will be first. And those that we just assumed were first and going to be at the table, they're actually going to be last. They're just not going to be there. The question that I think Luke is leading us through as he introduced these things in Luke 13 is to wrestle with the question of why. Why is this the case? Why is this true that last, first, first, last? What is it that keeps someone from entering the narrow door of salvation in Christ alone? That's the question rolling out of what we saw in chapter 13 and we rolled into Chance's sermon at the beginning of 14 where Luke says you can find answers to that question. Why is it, what is it that keeps someone from entering the narrow door of salvation? He says all you got to do is look at how one Pharisee threw a party. And you'll find the answers you need to why some will refuse to enter through the narrow door. The answer was found in this Pharisee's dinner party. By observing these actions, when Jesus shows up at the party, 
on the Sabbath day, observing how these Pharisees, religious leaders, went about picking a seat at the party, Jesus revealed that hypocrisy and pride will keep you from entering the narrow door of salvation. The hypocritical heart will be happy to say one thing and do something else. And Jesus says the hypocrisy of heart will keep you from pursuing entry through the narrow door. Pride will keep you from entering the narrow door. This then begs the further question, well, who then? If those that we thought would enter in are not going to enter in, and now we see why, the question is, well, then who are those who are going to strive to enter this narrow door? Who are the ones who will enter Jesus' kingdom? And that's where Brady's part of the Pharisee party showed up. And what we saw was that Jesus turned to that parable of the banquet, and that banquet parable provides part of the answer. Because those who are going to strive to enter the narrow door, the Savior's people, are those who respond to the Savior's invitation to enter. So when the Savior invites, they're going to be in because they take the Master, Jesus, at His word. He says, come, I'm going to come. But that wasn't the full answer because Jesus is going to continue talking in our text today and Luke is going to seamlessly roll right into this account where someone is going to, or he's interacting with crowds that are around him, and Jesus is going to continue to explain what it looks like to strive. Those who strive to enter through the narrow door, one, they respond to the Savior's invitation to enter, but not only that, the Savior's people who strive to enter through the narrow door of himself are those who count the cost of being his disciple because they look at the Master, they look at the Savior, they look at the King and go, he's worth it. He's worth the cost. And that's what we're going to concentrate on again today. Now, as I just said a little while ago, this text hopefully sounds overly familiar. It was just a few weeks ago that we preached this during our Everyday Disciple Sermon series. So what I want to do is just re-highlight a couple of things that we saw a couple of weeks ago, but then what I want us to do is to take that, set it on the table, and then to pick up the jewel of joy. And to consider some things about what Jesus says in John 15 and its connection to this command from Jesus for you to strive to enter through the narrow door of salvation in Him alone, okay? So as we look in Luke 14, verse 25, so we head into this verse, Jesus' teaching on true discipleship, this text in front of us, it is explaining something. It is explaining to you and to me what it looks like to strive to enter through the narrow door. So if you're like, well, what does that look like? What does it mean? I hear Jesus saying, do this. Strive. Like if the hands of faith laid hold of Christ alone is your only hope of salvation. Well, what does that look like? What will be the effects? What will be the evidence of a life that is actually striving to lay hold of Christ alone for salvation? I think Jesus' point is if you just want to put a heading over all of these verses, it's this. Striving looks like wholehearted following. Striving looks like wholehearted following. I think you can encapsulate verses 25 through 35 with that little phrase. Striving looks like wholehearted following. 
to enter through the narrow door is to follow Jesus. Simply said. And the king demands that his disciples change their allegiance, that they put self to death, that they renounce everything in order to follow him. He says, this is what striving. Striving looks like following me. And he says, the cost of following looks like total, ultimate loyalty, allegiance to me, putting self to death, renouncing all in your pursuit of me. So, if there is an unwillingness to strive in these ways... If there is an unwillingness to obey this command, strive in all that it means, then Jesus' challenge to you three times over is you cannot be my disciple. So what does it look like? First, it looks like this at least, that wholehearted following means a radical change of allegiance. That's what you see in verse 26. Wholehearted following means a radical change of allegiance. Look at your copy of Scripture. Look what Luke wrote. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he, says Jesus, cannot be my disciple. Now, as we said a couple of weeks ago, this is a flat-out audacious statement made by Jesus. The audacity of it peaks high. And it's this statement by Jesus that just knocks a whole lot of people out of whack. But ultimately, what I want you to do is to think of this statement made by Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament, specifically the first of the Ten Commandments. Because ultimately, for Jesus to say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate these various things, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, my argument before you right now is this, that this is the first commandment in the Old Testament of the Ten Commandments. It's just being repackaged and applied to Jesus. What is Exodus 20, verse 3, where we find the first of the Ten Commandments? We find Yahweh, the Lord God, telling his people what? You shall have, what? No other gods before me. My argument is this is Jesus taking that truth and applying it to himself because he is fully God. And the invitation that he's laying before us is I know the temptation to have other gods. And it doesn't always mean that you have a little idol of stone or wood to have a God in your life. It can be relational gods, it can be monetary gods, it can be financial gods, it can be possession, material possession gods. But the invitation here is you were designed and created to worship me because I am fully and truly God. So when Jesus calls for all other loves in our lives, to look like hate in comparison to our love for him, he is saying the same thing as the first commandment, have no other gods before me. That is the wooing good invitation on the part of Jesus. Some of us have relationships with our parents that are keeping us from pursuing Jesus. Some of us have boyfriends, girlfriends that are keeping us from pursuing Jesus. Some of us have loves of money, loves of a good standing in the eyes of others. Some of us have love for the approval of man that is keeping us from loving Jesus ultimately and supremely. And Jesus is saying, 
all those loves are to bow their knee before the ultimate love given to me. It's the first commandment repackaged. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God and because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, all other loves must rightly bow before our love of Jesus. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. That's the cost of striving, he says. King Jesus is the only one worthy of ultimate loyalty. Thus, true discipleship, striving to enter through the narrow door of Jesus, is nothing less than Jesus first above all. In this way, striving looks like counting the cost of what I love most. That's what it boils down to. Some of us, maybe in this very room right now, are wrestling with this because what is being revealed in your heart is this. I honestly love X more than I love Jesus. I love the approval I get, the power I get, the comfort I derive, the ease of life if I love this thing more than I love Jesus. And so counting the cost of what we love most is a price tag too steep for us to pay. That's why many see this cost as something they're just not willing to pay, which is why Jesus says, if anyone comes to me but is unwilling to count this cost of love to me above all other loves, he cannot be my disciple. Second, Jesus rolls into verse 27 and he says this isn't only a wholehearted following idea as it relates to like radical allegiance, but wholehearted following means putting self to death. That's verse 27. Look at your copy of scripture. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You guys get this? The language of cross-carrying is an extremely vivid picture. Extremely vivid picture. In Jesus' day, everyone knew that someone carrying a horizontal cross beam strapped to their back, no one was, no one was confused. It's, uh, that person is about to die. Cross-bearing meant death, and Jesus is taking this idea that would have been very real to his, this first audience. And what he's saying is, listen, guys, striving to enter through the narrow door looks like counting the cost of dying to self. There's overlap between the first two costs. Some of us are willing to love not Jesus more than Jesus, because we love self supremely. Truly, we are self-serving in that way. It's agreeing with Jesus, this call to die to self. It's agreeing with Jesus, ultimately, that the throne of my heart is not a co-rulership. It's not me and Jesus on the throne of my heart. He gets a little, a little bit of me, and I get a little bit of me. And if I'm honest, I want a little bit more than Jesus, and I'll sort of tip my hat to Jesus every now and then. 
So it's agreeing with Jesus, this call to wholehearted following, putting self to death. It's agreeing with Jesus that the throne of my heart is no co-rulership. Thus, if the throne of my heart is a single occupancy where there is a seat, not seats, it's either going to be King me or King Jesus ruling on the throne of my heart, cross-bearing, self-denying, self-dying, Jesus, you have my love supremely, looks like saying the one on the single occupancy throne of my heart is going to be Jesus. You heard me say this multiple times last week, and I hope you hear me say it again right now. This is not perfection. This is not perfection. If Jesus was speaking in the terms of perfection, none of us here would be qualified to sit at the table with Jesus. But it is pursuit. It's pursuit. Again, in this way, what does striving look like if it's the command to those listening? I'm asking you, sir, you, madam, are you striving to enter through the narrow door? What does striving look like, we say to Jesus? It looks like this. Striving looks like counting the cost of dying to self. Yet for many here, again, this price tag of striving is too steep, and thus they do not strive after Jesus in these ways. Why? Because they love self more than Jesus. I don't want to die to the thing that I love. Rarely do many of us want to kill the thing that we love. But self-love, self-serving, is something that Jesus says has to die because if you pursue love of self, that's you ruling on the throne of your heart. And that means I'm not ruling on the throne of your heart. And it's either got to be King me or it's got to be King Jesus. Third, what does wholehearted following look like? And this is verses 28 through the remainder of the chapter. It's these two parables that Jesus gave of the would-be tower builder and then the almost going out to fight king in battle. It's this, that wholehearted following means renouncing everything. It's the summary statement that goes back and encapsulates this idea of total allegiance. It encapsulates this idea of dying to self. Jesus says wholehearted following. What does this mean? It means renouncing everything. If you scan your eyes down to verse 33, there you see it just as plain as day. Verse 33, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has, there it is, he cannot be my disciple. So if you remember with this third reminder, what do we see here is this, is that striving to enter through the narrow door, it comes with a cost. Jesus holds out this third cannot before us. Whoever does not say goodbye to all that he has, maybe if you wanted to just put it in layman's terms, what is renouncing all in order to pursue Christ? It could sound like this. Listen, whoever does not say goodbye to all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, while Jesus is condemning all half-hearted, fair-weather discipleship, Jesus is doing this. That's why I've been using this language of whole hearted following. This is the invitation before us, an invitation to joy, an invitation to life, and this give me your all, and I want your all, not 
fair weather, not half heart, but whole heart. Well, you need to hear this. Jesus isn't saying this so that you hear his you cannot, 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 and somehow draw the conclusion that Jesus is speaking like this in order to send you packing. He's speaking like this to get you thinking so that upon thinking you will come after him. That's what we see him speaking there in this language. That's what we saw in the two parables, verses 28 through 32. Remember, Jesus uses this potential tower builder. He uses this maybe fighting king to get us to wrestle with two key questions. With the tower builder, remember this, desiring to build a tower, this tower builder is going to first sit down, he's going to count the cost because he doesn't want to look like a fool. He doesn't want to get mid-build and go, I, I don't have time, I don't have energy, I don't have money, I don't have the supplies, there's no way for me to, to do this. He says, anyone considering this pursuit is going to sit down and count the cost. And so with this parable, Jesus is asking us the question, can you afford the cost of following me? Because striving to enter through the narrow door does come with this cost. Radical allegiance, dying to self, renouncing all. Those are costs. Can you afford that cost? In other words, through this parable, wholehearted following, Jesus is admitting that it really does cost something to follow him. So he says, I don't want you to rush this decision. <laughs> don't rush the decision. Just as the builder must sit down and question whether he is willing to afford the cost of building, so the would-be disciple must question whether they're willing to afford the cost of following. But then Jesus rolls right out of that parable about this, this would-be tower builder to this maybe, will I, will I or not, go out and fight king. And with the maybe fighting king, Jesus also says, not only am I putting before you this question, can you afford the cost to follow me? But Jesus is also asking the question, but listen, can you afford the cost to oppose me? Can you afford the cost to oppose me? I don't want you to rush into it, but I also want you to see that as you weigh out the invitation to life, the invitation to joy, the invitation to, to supreme delight in pursuing me, yes, it will be something that costs you, you, but in the laying down of you, you gain eternal reward. So don't rush it, but can you avoid to oppose that's what Jesus is saying. Is there a cost to count in following Jesus? Obviously, the answer is yes. A radically devoted, self-dying pursuit of Jesus is costly. It is just as plain as day in the text. But there is also a cost to count in opposing King Jesus and his demands on your life. Look at verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and what? Deliberate. Count the cost. Whether he is able with 10,000 to go out and meet or oppose him who comes against him with 20,000. So here is this 20,000 king who's shown up on the doorstep of the 10,000 king and his kingdom and the 10,000 king has to weigh the cost. 
if I seek to oppose the 20,000 king, there will be a price to pay. And I don't know if I'm willing to pay that price, verse 32. So if he's not willing to pay the price, what does he do? While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and what? Asks for terms of peace. I think peace is a key word in this parable from Jesus to you. I am the prince of peace. Don't oppose. I'm helping you to see. Don't rush. Don't just dive into it without first thinking, but count the cost of striving. And if the cost of striving is a price tag that's not too big, what you need to know is you can find the joy and delight of peace with me. It can be found. Many of us can attest to it. My life of pursuing Jesus has been simultaneously peaceful, delightful joy. And it's not because life has been high fives and puppy dogs. Some of us would say, my life got increasingly harder when I began to pursue Jesus. But it's been one of the most beautiful costs I've ever been counted to pay. And it pales in comparison to the peaceful, joyful, delightful reward that I have found credited to my account in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as the king with 10,000 needs to count that cost, so would-be disciples need to count the cost of what will happen if they deny and oppose King Jesus. You know as well as I do that many conclude they can afford the cost of opposing Jesus because they believe that opposing Jesus, they believe, draw the conclusion that not striving to enter through the narrow door will ultimately, ultimately cost little, will probably cost nothing. Yeah, there's no really cost to opposing him. But as you know, others do come to see that the cost of opposition has eternal consequences. And so they joyfully submit to the king seeking peace from him and seeking peace in him. Listen, I want, I want you to pay attention here. That was basically the summary of last week. If you want more on that, you can go and find the sermon last week or a couple weeks ago from Luke 14. But I want you to hear this. If you've heard nothing, pay attention. If you've been taking a nap, praise God, wake up. Now's the time to listen. Listen. Jesus is no fool. Jesus is no fool. Jesus knows that the cost of obeying his command to strive is not cheap. He's not a fool. He's not up there going like, come on, guys, this is, this is pennies, this is nothing. Get your act together, start striving, start following, buckle down, grin and bear it, bite the bullet, bootstrap, and get it done. He's not saying that. Jesus is no fool. Jesus knows that the cost of obeying his command to strive is not cheap. But listen, I want you to hear this so bad. I need you to hear this. Here's what Jesus also knows. But Jesus also knows that this command for you to strive to enter in through the narrow door of himself is also for your extreme, everlasting, unending, never going to stop joy. 
It's never going to stop. And that's what I think we see in John 15. Jesus is for your joy. Have you ever just stopped to consider this? For some of us, we've grown up in church too long and we think what I'm saying right now is near blasphemy. Jesus can't be for my joy. Jesus is for my delight. Jesus wants me to enjoy something. This doesn't sound right, but what you need to know is that while the cost of obeying the command to strive isn't cheap, this doesn't lead Jesus to say, well, that might be too much for some, so I will not issue the command to strive. No, Jesus still issues the command for you to strive because Jesus knows that life is on the back end of this striving. He knows that your delight to the full is on the back end of obedience to this command to strive. He knows your joy filled full to the brim and overflowing is found in walking in obedience to the command strive Enter through the narrow door of me. Now, for many of us, what you are listening to me say, it sounds too good to be true. For many of us, this thought of Jesus being for my joy, it rages against your past Christian experience. It rages against your past spiritual experience, your past religious experience, the church family history experience that you grew up in to think that Jesus could possibly be for my joy. You want to raise your hand and go, I strongly beg to differ. Thank you very much. It rages against your Christian experience, which has been rarely, if ever, joyful. It has been far from delight. Jesus and his commands have actually been burdensome. Jesus and his commands have been lifeless to you. In short, following Jesus has just been pure and absolute drudgery. There's been nothing remotely, remotely anything like delight. And so as a result, a sermon series like we preached a couple of weeks ago about the everyday disciples, the, the identities that we have in Christ to come and be worshipers and to live out our identity as witness and to family and followers and servants, we, we hear those sorts of things and it just sounded like I was heaping burden on your soul and talking about what it looks like to pursue Jesus in this way, or even this morning, a sermon like today, it is generally ignored or it's just flat out denied because you can only hear these words from my lips through the filter of your past experience. And you just struggle. You're like, there's just no way joy can be found in the pursuit of Christ in these things. Thus, words like I'm using today sound like an invitation to come back to the passionless, joyless, burdensome drudgery you've known. Because that's, that's the only way you can hear it. But what you need to know, and my hope is that today you begin to see, even only if it's like microscopic, mustard seed-sized 
seeing is that this is not what Jesus is inviting you to. When you hear me say, for your joy, Jesus is calling you to obey the command to strive, and your past experience is forcing you to compute, Jonathan, through the scriptures, is inviting me back into a life of death, a life that is lifeless, a life that is joyless, a life that is passionless, a life that is drudgery, a life that is burdensome. What I want you to know is yet this burdensome vision of Jesus needs to rightly die because you've got the vision wrong Jesus's invitation for you to walk in obedience to his commands according to Jesus is joy your joy is in store for your pursuit of him now I say this because with great confidence because of what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. Listen to how Jesus speaks there in the upper room to those gathered around him. He says, listen, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, this is how you will abide in my love. I've done the same thing, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. That's how I abided in His love. What you need to know is these things I'm speaking to you, it's so that my joy that I have to the full, forever, never-ending, for all eternity, and walking in obedience to the Father's commands for me, and that me abiding in love, my joy that I found in doing that, guess what? My joy can be yours. And not in a microscopic little dull drop. That's all you get. It's so that this my joy in you can be yours exploding the top off in fullness of joy. Now, we cannot possibly fathom just how deep the Father's love is for the Son. That is what's so amazing about verse 9. Jesus says, as the Father, first person of the Trinity, has loved me, Christ the Son, that is the measure of the love by which I love you. You can ponder and fathom the deepness of the never-ending riches of the Father's love for the Son, and you will not tap it dry. Heaven is in an infinite amount of infinities because one of the things we're going to continue to be wowed with for all eternity is the deepness and the magnitude and the vastness of just how much the Father loves the Son. And Jesus says, that's the measure by which I love you. That should make some of us fall out of our seat, but because we're Baptists, we don't do those sorts of things. So you can just sit in your seat and swoon in your head, okay? The divine love shared between the Father and the Son is vast, it is wide, it is deep, and it is an, un, un, it is an unmeasurable love that passes knowledge, and it can never be fully comprehended by man. But yet Jesus says, this is the love by which I love you. So what we can take off the table is this. Is Jesus really for me or not? I don't know. 
He's never given me any evidence that he has love toward me. He, he is telling you either Jesus is a complete lunatic, says insane things that he doesn't mean, or he says what he means, but he's a flat-out liar. I love you, but not really. Or he's the truth teller. And when he says, I love you, we take him at his word. So now we can say, if Jesus is the truth teller and Jesus says, the way the Father has loved me, that is the way by which I am loving you, the measure he uses to love those who believe in him is the same measure of love shown to him by the Father. It's this Jesus who turns around and says, I want you to make this my love for you your home. Abide in it. Live in it. Dwell in it. Make it the permanent residence by which you live in relationship to me. Make this love I have for you your home. The question you should be asking is, but how do I do that? How do I abide and remain in Jesus' love for me? That's where verse 10 comes in. Jesus says, here's how you will abide in my love. Notice if you keep my commandments. Jesus connects our obedience to his commands with his great love. And what he's teaching is that it is possible to taste and see and experience the inexhaustible depths of Jesus' love for you. And it comes through obedience to his command. So when Jesus says, here is a command for you, invitation to delight for your joy, strive. Strive. Enter through the narrow door of me for your salvation. This is Jesus wooing us to a life of eternal joy. His command, strive to enter through the narrow door, it's as though Jesus is saying, listen, friend, this command comes out of my heart of deepest love for you. I am not lying to you. This command is good news because this command is for your joy. I'm commanding this so that my joy that I have in obeying my Father's commands and abiding in His love, I want my joy that I have in this way to be yours, and it can be yours, and this joy can live within you. I'm commanding you to strive so that your joy might be Thus, strive is not an invitation to drudgery, but an invitation to delight. It's an invitation to delight. It's the words of Gandalf. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? Yeah. Movies or books? Yeah, okay. Fellowship of the Ring, remember, it's the words of Gandalf to Bilbo Baggins when it came time for Bilbo to give up the ring. Do you remember what Gandalf did? Gandalf came to him, big, comes to him and says what? Bilbo, I'm, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. I just wish you would trust me, he says. Now why does he say this? Why does Gandalf say this to Bilbo? Because in that moment, Bilbo had something he loved. It was something that was is precious to him. And for Gandalf to come along and say, I want you to give up this thing that's precious to you, it felt like robbery. 
felt like Gandalf was being a robber. felt like Gandalf was stealing. It sounded like Gandalf was inviting Bilbo into a lesser life, into a life of passionless drudgery where this thing that I love is going to be gone. Surely my life cannot be better if this thing leaves me. But Gandalf, knowing what the ultimate good was for Bilbo, says, listen, I am not trying to rob you. I'm here to help you. I just wish you would trust me here. I can see what is best for you. Lay down the lesser so that you can enter into the delight of something greater. Thus, when we hear the command to hate even one's own life from Jesus, this feels like robbery. Jesus, I think you're robbing something from me right now. The command to daily die to self, it feels like Jesus is robbing me. The command to renounce all feels like robbery, but these only feel like robbery because our hearts' loves have settled for less than best. But because Jesus is for your joy, he calls you to deny. He calls you to die. He commands that you strive and enter the narrow door of salvation in Him alone because this is the only way your joy may be filled full to the brim and overflowing. Jesus, if I dare put the words of Gandalf in the mouth of Jesus, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm not robbing you to ask you to strive. I'm helping you to come and taste and know and enjoy the forever eternal delights. I just wish that you would trust me. And that's the invitation for you this morning. Is Jesus worthy of being trusted? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for having a care for our souls. Jesus, thank you so much for speaking to us very straightforwardly. Thank you for having a care to challenge our hearts' loves. Lord, help us to wrestle with that little internal lawyer that's probably going to full-time work right now in some of our hearts and minds saying, yeah, uh, it feels like Jesus is robbing me. He's inviting me to be robbed. <laughs> to lose feels like robbery. But Spirit, help us to trust Jesus and to take him at his word. That he loves us, which is why he calls us to obey his commands and issue commands like strive. It's because of love. He knows that life is on the backside of striving. Lord, would you bring some of us who are wrestling with these things, if it's just even an incremental step towards delight in you, Lord, would you bring it to pass? For those of us who find ourselves traveling this path, would you just further deepen our great joy and delight in following and walking in obedience to you? Christ, would you do a great work in the life of this Jesus family today where we begin to fight for joy? Found in Jesus Christ alone, not only in our lives only, but in the lives of our fellow Jesus family members. Christ, we need your help in these things, and it's to you that we ask for this help. It's in your name we pray. Amen.